loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Dr. Sarah Neustadter. Sarah's a clinical and transpersonal psychologist, writer, and podcaster based in Venice Beach, Los Angeles. She specializes in spiritual development, suicide survivor grief, unblocking creativity, and millennial issues. Her passion lies in guiding and designing unique experiences for others to heal, self-actualize, and embody their greatest life. Her first book is Love You Like the Sky, Surviving the Suicide of a Beloved, and her website is www.sarahneustadter.com. Welcome, Sarah. So much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's good to have you. I, I, enjoy, I, you know, I'm never sure what to say about grief books, but I will say I enjoyed it, <laughs> even well, though that's okay. counterintuitive for some people. It isn't for me. I, I know, and I never know what to say when people say they've read my book, because I, I almost want to thank you for taking the, you know, the time and the energy for reading it, because it, it is a specifically very heavy kind of a read. But it's nice to know that you enjoyed it, nevertheless. I I think, you know, somebody told me we're all looking for the people who um, who have similar experiences to ours. Uh, my, I, the death in my life was not a suicide, but, uh, you know, the, the intensity of expression around grief, I just always appreciate it when, when other people are willing to... Um, you know, to go for, go there, basically. Uh, it's kind of a, feels like a relief sometimes. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, the reason why I wrote the book is because I didn't feel like I found any books out there that were talking about the intensity of what it's like to be in the experience of grief. Um, that just like related to what I was feeling, most of the books that I found felt very distant and clinical, and it, I wasn't even sure if the author had gone through something grief-related, and so that really didn't win my trust or my confidence when I was looking for for books for grief. And um, it's not that I um, was willing to go there and write about it. It almost felt like I had to do it. Like, it was almost like a calling. Like, one of the things that actually helped me get out of my own grief was the writing of the book and hopefully, you know, finding meaning out of, out of this loss, which I, I couldn't quite grapple, you know, grapple with or wrap my mind around, like, why was this happening? And so one of the ways that I was able to kind of reconcile that question was to say, hey, well, you know, I have this experience and I'm also a psychologist, so I'm a professional and I want to help other young women specifically, but also any, anybody really who's sure. having to shockingly navigate you know, a death like this, like a traumatic loss or any kind of loss. Well, there, there were some parts of it that there were some parts of it that were, uh, you know, 
just familiar in terms of grief, the kind of bereft um, laying on the ground feelings. And then there were some parts of it that felt to me um, somewhat particular to losing uh, John. I'll I'll just uh, bring him into the conversation to uh, sure. by way of suicide, and um, because that's even a more if grief is something people don't want to talk about, suicide is something most people really don't want to talk about. And I wondered how that. Uh, you know, you could talk to a page and no, was, no one was going to back off or, or get itchy about it. Yes. Uh, so I wondered if that yeah. might have been part of what fueled the writing is just needing so much to talk about it and perhaps having limited places to do that. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I mean, I definitely needed an outlet of my own and, um, as you may know, and our listeners may know that grief, like the sort of the deepest layers of grief are really, at least for me, very private, um, like the laying on the floor moments. And because suicide, I think, especially this is 10 years ago, um, was so stigmatized and such a scary sort of under the, you know, under the rug, hushed up topic. I, and nobody really could relate to what I was going through. I, I felt very isolated and very alienated in my experience. And um, so writing was really a good outlet. It was something to kind of just focus on and to put my energy in. Um, I was living in the Bay Area at the time in Palo Alto and uh, Mountain View. And there was there's a wonderful grief center there called CARA. And I applied, you know, I interviewed to go, to be a part of their suicide survivor group, group, but they were full and there was a wait list. So I didn't get the opportunity to, to be in that kind of a support environment. Um, and then so I looked for therapists and actually none of the therapists that I found um, had any real personal experience surviving suicide. So it kind of, it felt like to me, like I really was on my own at the time and um you know, that was another motivating force for writing the book was that so other people don't necessarily have to feel as alone. That Like, there's somebody that can model a potential way to how to get through this kind of loss and can also kind of resonate or share, like, my own feelings, like the, the just utter shock and devastation. Absolutely. It's one becomes the other sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah, our own experiences end up being the thing we share to serve other people down the line. Obviously, that applies to me and applies yeah. to you as well. Um, one thing that did stand out is that both you and John were, were training as psychologists then. Um, we're in a training yeah. program. And so you were surrounded by, you know, people who are interested in psychology, interested in supporting people who are having deep emotional experiences. Uh, I, I'm jumping to a conclusion, but I think that's uh, no, it's true. likely. It's but that, that doesn't necessarily, I've discovered, doesn't necessarily mean people are that good with deep grief. Uh, what did You're you right. find? 
Honestly, I, I agree. That's what I found. I mean, A, first of all, we didn't, none of us were able to um, pick up on his suicide. Um, I asked him the week before he died if he was thinking of death, and he said, you know, he had normal thoughts. And so I didn't press further, even though I wish now, of course, that I did. So not only did were they, the, you know, the community not very um, in tune with how to help me with my grief, but we also weren't able to prevent his suicide, which I, you know, I think is also really interesting. Um, and so uh, you you and, had maybe a kind of at first maybe a communal guilt or feeling like you with I, with all that psychological knowledge someone should have something, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Even though that's well, I know. of course we know that's not true. I can imagine yeah. that that would be up for not just you in that situation. Yeah, well, I definitely beat myself up for it myself, but it it did come up. I don't know if it was a, like a community guilt, but it did come up like, wow, like we we did not see this coming. And that may have been just because of how he did it and how he chose not to reveal that he was going, you know, what his plans are. Um, but, but yeah, it was, that was kind of shocking. And then also... People, you know, I had a few close friends from grad school, and they were really supportive and there for me. Um, and then at times they weren't there for me because their lives were carrying on in normal and happy ways. And, you know, weekends got busy, their lives got busy, and, and mine was still very empty. Um, so I was actually kind of disappointed over the months with how my grad school community, you know, supposedly you know, there to help people and, you know, all this kind of talk about being in the community and how really they petered out in the end. And eventually I moved down after a year after he died. Um, I moved to LA for a fresh start. And, and it was there that I found like a real solid community that I needed. Um, so, you know, that... I, I too was training when my wife was ill and a very new therapist when she died. And uh, I find that I can't get the two apart. Uh, everything about the kind of therapist I am uh, refers to that in some way. You know, uh, it, it, it can't help but be really woven together. And I, I think I felt that in your book too and there's there's a piece I'd love for you to share um, why are we so afraid to cry um, oh sure because you know you'd think um, therapists in general invite tears and all this but that kind of sobbing bereft falling apart not everyone actually is that inviting yes yes yeah um you know, I wasn't that way in the beginning, too. I mean, I, you know, in the book I write how, like, I really wasn't a crier. Like, I would never cry in public. I'm from the East Coast. I'm from New York. We kind of zip up our feelings in public, and we put on this tough face. But when it came to his death, like, that was just gone. And all I could do, honestly, was cry. And I cried in public. I, I went to Trader Joe's, and I found myself hearing a song, and then I was sobbing in the middle of the aisle or at the gym. I'd see something, like, on a TV screen, and that would, you know, trigger, like, I would see his name, like, um, John Delaney, who turns out is a senator. You know, this is years ago, and that, that was exactly his name, and that would make me cry. Um, 
so I, and I find that that was actually really healing as much as it was really painful to be crying all the time. I think the deeper I could go with the sobbing and the tears, actually the deeper I went with my healing. Um, mm. So I'd be happy to read that, that section from the book. Um, so it's called, Why Are We So Afraid to Cry? Um, they say the only way out is through, and it's fucking annoying and cliche, but it's true. This grieving is a crazy journey, madness, insanity, never-ending in some ways, but it is also transformative if you allow it and shape it. Your shell's been cracked open, and something new is emerging. If you go in there and live it, experience it like your life depends on it, and it does, I guarantee that when you pop out on the other side of it, you will be different. You will feel things in new ways and experience life from a perspective you never thought possible. You might not want to hear it, you might not see it or believe it, and you certainly don't want it, but I invite you to feel it as fully as you can. Your power is in there. Claim it. Get what's yours. And I'll read one more. In various areas of my life, and in my work especially, I hear people commenting, I got too emotional, so I stopped myself from crying, or I can't read that, it makes me cry, or I just don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I've had clients tell me they just can't let themselves cry or grieve. Their crying is a sign of weakness, and they need to be strong, hold it together. Quote, Dad never allowed crying in the house. I hear this a lot. This fear of crying is like an epidemic in our culture. I can understand it, of course. Before John passed, I found the idea of showing emotion, real emotion in public, mortifying. And it would have been abominable for me to actually shed tears in front of anyone. That was something I kept to myself. I only allowed myself to cry in the privacy of my room behind closed doors. Um, I know it's painful. I know it's hard to feel so much at times. We feel like we will lose our minds, lose ourselves to the tears, be swallowed up into the depths of the ocean, and never find our way back. But why would we deny ourselves this experience? This is the stuff of life. This is why we came here, to fully feel it all. Why would we bypass this part and attempt to only feel joy and light? I do know the value of feeling joy in every moment. This is one of the curious byproducts of an intensive grieving process. Go figure. However, skipping over the darkness and the pain to get to the light and the transcendent and the spiritual does not lead to wholeness or complete healing. The journey is to integrate the dark with the light, the pain with the pleasure, the human with the divine transcendent until they ultimately become one and the same. So you can walk in the dark and be the illumination and not feel threatened or scared, knowing that you will not become corrupted or lose yourself. It's very very interesting how I responded to that section because uh, it, it filled me with gratitude in a weird way because uh, since I knew for so long, almost a decade, that my wife was going to die, uh, wow. I, I I sort of made a bargain with myself that I got to that I got to do grief. You know, I sort of advanced mm. planned, and so then when I was in grief and I cried, I didn't really have, I didn't, ha- I didn't fight it at all. You know, <laughs> it was just what was happening. And, it, and I was, so, I noticed that that was a very 
a life-affirming decision that I didn't on purpose do it for that reason. I just did it because I had to think ahead and and try to imagine I could, you know, live through it in a way. But but that permission to feel whatever I felt and and not fight with it at all really, really supported me. And so I was thinking about that because your loss was so very sudden. It's like you got dropped into the middle of all that. Um, And it's a very different experience, but you got to the same place, which is, you know, our, our tears have such power and, and beauty. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, yeah. For me, it wasn't sort of a premeditated thing. It was just, like you said, I got dropped into it and, those tears did not stop for a long time. And I remember um, I had a friend in grad school who his father had passed away a few years before. And so she had grieved and her advice to me was like, just keep crying. It, you know, you might just go to your therapist's office and cry for the whole hour and you might have to do that for a whole year, you know, without even saying anything in the office. She's just like, or a year and a half or two years, just keep crying. Like the arms for those Sometimes the words don't really do anything, and it's the tears that do. I have I have a, a teacher and friend who uh, follows an African tradition, and in that tradition, tears are the food of the ancestors. Oh, uh, which I adore. Huh. <laughs> I really okay. love that idea um, that that we'd somehow be feeding. Um, those who've gone before when we when we cry. Um, yeah, sometimes it does have that feeling, doesn't it, of sacredness or uh, depth. It does. Yeah, it does. And, and that's the word, like sacred. There's something very sacred about grief. Um, and it's nice if you can connect to some sort of spirituality or, you know, ancestors, whatever your spiritual views are. Just to know that, yes. like, um, at least I found it comforting to know that death wasn't the end, um, that there might be something else on the other side, be it the ancestors or our loved ones who have passed. Like, that, that was really necessary for me in my process. Yes. And, and I suppose ultimately connecting to the fact that most people in human history have grieved. If they lived long enough, they grieved, they lost I know. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we're all connected, aren't we? It, it's time for our first break. Yeah. Uh, so we'll come back okay. to that when we, uh, that idea of something okay. beyond and how you relied on that, I want to talk more about. And listeners, you okay, can perfect. We can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Sarah Newstetter, you can go to www.sarah.com. N-E-U-S-T-A-D-T-E-R dot com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. 
What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Perspectives with Dr. Badisha Patel is a program that explores emotional management for a healthier lifestyle. On each program, we discuss ideas that support emotional well-being, such as mental illness, relationships, parenting, and family connections, and much more. If you are facing challenges in your life, you can grow and learn by exploring new techniques in dealing with stress, anxiety, and relationships. Perspectives with Dr. Vadisha Patel airs live Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Are you living a healthy and fit lifestyle? It's not just related to your physical well-being. It also means a healthier mind, confidence, improved health, stamina, and fitness. Talking with Tremaine brings it all to you. Host Tremaine Ellis, along with her husband and co-host David Ellis, will offer support, advice, guidance, and motivation to keep you in your best shape, both physically and mentally. Talking with Tremaine can be heard live every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Sarah Neustadter, the author of Love You Like the Sky, about her own grief process after the death by suicide of her beloved. And before the break, Sarah, we were just beginning to talk about the um, the great help it is if you have something that you believe in that's kind of beyond the here and now beyond um, our life in these bodies. Um, do you feel as if you already had that and it it helped you or did it develop? How did that intersect with your, your own grief? Well, I wanted to say that before he passed that, yes, I had those beliefs but they were a little bit more sort of philosophical. Um, they were like aspirational beliefs. Like I wanted to believe that there was an afterlife. I wanted to believe that there were things that, you know, I can't quite know. Um, so I was open to it, but it didn't really, I had never really lost somebody. I mean, I had lost my grandparents, but their passings weren't very um, transformational for me in any particular way. So um, the night, uh, the night of the day that John died, 
I really couldn't sleep at all. I mean, I was distraught and crying and all of a sudden I felt something like different in the room. It was just felt a lot lighter and um, I felt calm and it felt to me like his energy and, and a lot of this, you know, can be kind of weird and also stigmatized to talk about. We have, I think there's a little bit of um, taboo in our culture to kind of like believe in these things. They might be a little too like woo-woo. But nevertheless, I was staying open and it felt like something shifted in the room. And so I began to have a conversation in my mind with him about what had happened. And I stayed open to you know, hearing whatever it was that I imagined that he said. So can I verify that this was 100% objective reality and happened? I don't know. But it was that experience that began to help me open to the possibility that something else was going on, whether it was my imagination that was creating it or whether it actually was happening. I desperately needed to have some sense of evidence that he was still alive and I just needed that comfort. And so either I created it or it was happening, but um, I would keep a journal of all the sort of signs and synchronicities that I noticed that seemed pretty unusual um, that I felt like were communications from him or some sort of connection to him or um, an afterlife. And over the years, I've met with shamans, and I've met with mediums, and um, I've gotten more and more evidence. So um, I'm now more of an experiential believer because mm. I've sort of challenged these beliefs uh, about the afterlife, and I've, I've gone into them with mediums. Um, I'm also right now binging on the show uh, Hollywood Medium with Tyler Perry. I don't know if you've seen it. What's it's the show again? Phenomenal. It's called with, Hollywood Medium with Tyler oh. Perry. And um, it's this very young teenager medium named Tyler. And he goes, with, you know, to celebrities who he doesn't even recognize. And he does these medium readings. And his accuracy is just mind-blowing. So I, I think, like, I challenge anybody to watch this show if you're not a believer. Watch this show and see if you can still stay a non-believer in an afterlife because his accuracy is just phenomenal. Um, so that's sort of like my experience with it. I'd love to know what yours is. Well, I would say that I was a, uh, a confirmed agnostic before Joanne's illness. Uh, I, I was raised by a minister father. Um, but I, mm. I, I gave that up very young. I, I just, uh, I don't know that it was actually the beliefs. It was more the people that I interacted with who were, <laughs> who were practicing the beliefs, not my parents. They were very loving. Uh, they were kind of the best of the Christians, but, um, other people I encountered just seemed t- hypocritical to me. So I kind of cast it all aside, but during her illness, and then much more uh, deeply after her death, I just had so many experiences that I couldn't explain that uh, I just take it for granted. Uh, Maybe the most compelling one that my daughter, who was two and a half at the time, 
uh, right after my wife died, she's pointed at the ceiling and said, look, mom, birdies, which we later figured out were probably angels. Uh, And then that night she fell out of bed and she said that my wife had been uh, looking down at her from the top of a ladder and she had tried to climb up to, to be with her. And uh, my wife said, go back down. It's not time, honey. Uh, Those were two really, there are others, but those were the two that really compelled me because, of course, we hadn't fed anything to her, you know, whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Um, And it made me realize that some of the things that are described that are sort of uh, um, almost paranormal sorts of experiences were actually like in the Bible and other traditions are actually experiences that people had. Uh, Okay. Jacob's ladder is something that really happened to somebody, you know, that was a revelation, but I agree with you that sometimes it's hard to talk about those aspects. Although everyone I'm close to has had deep loss. We just kind of refer to it casually. Um, right. You know, the, the kinds of experiences that uh, you just can't deny. But I think part of uh, maybe tell me if this is true for you. Part of not talking about it widely is I don't want people to become scientific about it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, in any way, either for or against, um, because it, sure. it is more experiential. I'm I'm with you on that. What's, what's your experience with sharing those things with folks? You've now shared it in the book. So um, yes. I wonder and if people comment I, on that part. You know, um, I was a little bit shy to write about those experiences in the book, but ultimately it was so important for my process, like my healing process. And I think it was really also sort of an opening, maybe a spiritual opening for me that I, I, I wrote about it. Um, similar to you, I grew up in a very religious environment. I grew up Orthodox Jewish um, in New York, and we didn't really have any discussion of anything, even quote-unquote spiritual or paranormal. And as a late teenager, I started leaving Judaism, and I started being really interested in the paranormal and in psychic phenomenon, and I wanted to study parapsychology, and I was meditating and having a lot of really unusual experiences, and my experience in general in New York was that when I would tell people about my experiences, they either looked at me like I was crazy, or they literally told me to my face they thought I was crazy. Mm. So I learned to, you know, shut my mouth. Um, in my 20s about the things that I was into. And um, so I do feel, and I think I internalized a little bit of that too, that I thought that maybe I was crazy, that there was something wrong with me, that even though I knew I was having these experiences, their perception that it was crazy kind of made me doubt my own experiences. So that's something I still struggle with. But now that I've been out in California about 13 years, um, and... I live in LA and I've gone through the experiences that I've gone through. Um, a lot more of my peers and my friends and who are healers and believe in and things like that, like this, 
um, yeah, we casually do talk about these things. Like, for example, um, I did a book signing in June when my book came out, and we did it at this um, bookstore here in Venice. And my friends helped me set up, and they put a couple of copies of my book sort of on display behind the flowers and behind where me and my um, co-presenter were speaking. And right as we began speaking, um, three of the books fell over, just just randomly <laughs> knocked over. And so a couple of people in the audience who were my friends were like, oh, yeah, that's John. John's here. He's saying hello. And so that's sort of how they interpret it. And, you know, I kind of find it funny that, you know, maybe it was John. I'd like to believe that it was John announcing his presence. But um, I could also see how, like, that could be a bit far out there, you know, or woo-woo. Well, I, I sort of feel like where I come out on that is either way you look at it, it was. It was either him or it was you thinking of him when that happened. You know, either way, he was present. Right. Um, right. That's sort of how I get around it when clients are opposed to thinking of things that way. It doesn't really, in the end, I've, I've concluded it doesn't really matter what the absolute truth is to me. Uh, it's the experience that that matters to me, uh, sure. even though I have a belief. Really but what's that? Yeah. No, I'm yeah. sorry. I was saying, yeah, it doesn't really matter. However, I do find um, there is something healing and something very comforting in having like a powerful experience with a medium. Say, for example, where you get like concrete evidence of your loved one's existence in the afterlife, like something that the medium or that no one else would have known. And if that kind of thing comes through, um, it actually is like just really healing. It just opens up like a whole new dimension to life. Mm. Um, yeah. Yes. So I've learned know. a lot I, about I'd that like doing, doing this show because I've interviewed uh, a few different mediums Uh very reputable mediums. And uh, what's interesting is their commitment to not bypassing grief, you know, that both have to happen, uh, which, which surprised me a bit at first, but now I think it's kind of uh, something that reputable mediums uh, believe that you still have to grieve, but that it can be very helpful in a, in, in creating a bigger context and and feeling what connection still uh, still is there, I I was struck too that you uh, the parts of your book that are that are not just descriptive about grief but are your grief you wrote to John directly. Would you talk yeah. about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Um, I felt like I had to write about my experience, um, A, for myself to connect the dots and sort of be an investigator about how he had took his life in front of us, and there must have been signs and clues that I didn't know were there, um, and also potentially to help other people down the line. Once that, and, and so in sitting with sort of this, uh, with a blank page, it was like, okay, well, how am I going to do this? Like, it was almost a matter of, like, how can I be most practical and efficient about getting through the writing process? And um, just writing sort of 
not to John felt a little too burdensome and um, impersonal. And I just felt like I needed to create like a really personal kind of um, voice to this story. And I still really wanted to talk to him. And mm-hmm. so I, I just felt it's almost intuitive. Like the only way I was going to be able to write this book is if I could write emails to him and direct it to him specifically, and then send them out to him. So that's how I formatted it. And um, I literally sat down, opened up an email, addressed it to him, got out what I needed to get out for that session, and then sent it. Um, And honestly, it's just there there was no other way I could write that book. What was was, uh, striking to me about that is... uh, something I, I really believe that um, grief is a lot less doable if the relationship is cut off. If, if you've, uh, you, if you've lost someone's body, you know, they're not in their body, they're dead. That's a huge loss. But to me, what's bigger is if you suddenly don't relate to them anymore inside of yourself. And uh, so it struck me that that was a beautiful way to keep relating to him. Uh, you know, you didn't, you didn't, um, have to go through that sort of, uh, everything about how you loved him was gone. Uh, I, I don't know if you did that at all consciously, but it's what came to my mind reading it. No, definitely. It was a conscious decision too. I mean, I was, and you, I'm sure, you know, like losing a partner was just, for me, I think the hardest kind of loss that I, I could have ever imagined because you do have a physical, like a very intimate physical relationship that gets severed. Like there's no longer a body. Um, and so I couldn't, like I could never imagine just cutting off the conversation or the relationship to him. I'm still very much in love with him still pining away, still missing him like crazy. And so, like, I had to have something, some sort of tangible object or metaphorical object that I could kind of relate to or connect with or or talk to. And so writing has always been my preferred form of communication. So it was, it just sort of made sense. Just and, natural. Um, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I can never imagine cutting off the relationship with someone after they after they passed. For sure. That would be brutal. Let's yeah. take a short break and then continue from there after the break. Cause, uh, okay. I, that's something I want to talk about more. I think it's so important for people to give themselves that permission. Uh, and listeners, you can go find us both during the break. Uh, I'm at weatheringgrief.com or the Good Grief host page. And on that host page, there's a link to my novel, An Ocean Between Them. If you want to look that up and find out more about it and to find Sarah Neustadter, you can go to sarahneustadter.com. Back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent 
inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. Still, there is hope. Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh King. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Sarah Neustadter, psychologist and author of Love You Like the Sky. Um, I wanted to get, as this is our last segment, there is something that really intrigued me looking into your into your work, which is that, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you were you were getting your PhD when when John died, and I noticed that just a couple years after that, uh, you. Well, I'm assuming you were writing it that whole two years, but two years later was when you completed your dissertation, the subject being transpersonal mate selection, an investigation of spiritual and extraordinary factors 
that influenced the decision to marry one's partner. I figured you had probably chosen that subject before he died. Would that be correct? Uh, Thinking about how long dissertations take? No, actually, I chose it after he died. And the reason I did that was, um, and this is part of sort of the irony of all of, you know, this, this calling in my life around suicide. I went into graduate school wanting to study suicide and actually wanting to study spiritual motivations for people's suicide attempts. And that was always a fascination of mine. I mean, suicide has been a theme of my life, and I talk about it in the book, um, even from a very young age. But after he died, there was no way that I was going to be able to research or write about suicide. From an academic point of view, it was just too too heavy and too much going on, and my grief was so all-consuming. So I needed a topic that would have that was very lighthearted and easy for me to get through. Um, and so that's why I looked into, you know, romantic love and, and extraordinary sort of X factors in courtship. And um, I figured if I'm going to be spending about almost two to three years on a topic, I want it to not make me even more depressed and sad. Mm. And so this is what I came up with. And... I was very lucky, actually. I had a, a, dissertation, a dissertation chair who had um, lost a daughter in a fluke car accident the year before. And so he stepped forward and, you know, announced himself as my uh, chair committee, uh, even though, like, he was, you know, he does different departments, does covers different topics, but... He was just really kind and really generous, and he was like, I know what you're going through, and I want to make your experience as easy and as seamless as possible. I don't want you to deal with, like, extra stuff that students go through with dissertation committees and all the bureaucracy. He's like, I'll just do whatever you need. We can do whatever topic you want. So he was amazing. And so the dissertation actually was kind of a nice distraction for me from my grief. So that's oh, that's so fascinating. Today. I'm glad you I'm glad you asked me. I mean, I asked you because I was putting myself in your shoes where you've lost someone you were deeply and spiritually connected to. And then writing about people, you know, getting married. And, and I was thinking, God, that must have been painful. But actually, it was a relief. We, we just don't know yeah. how things are going to exactly feel until we're in them, do we? Right, I guess, yeah, and it was that's an interesting that you saw that and that you asked about that. Um, I'm still very curious about the topic of my dissertation, like you know how people know that their partner is the right one for them. But, it's a yeah, very so mysterious it, thing, isn't it? It is, and it's still even after writing the dissertation, it still is. But that was for me at least was like a light, sort of fluffy. That was like my rom com of dissertation topics. <laughs> Well, but it it also implies, uh, you know, you you weren't in that place at that moment, right? To be, I'm assuming, to be looking for someone to be that in your life, but you no, immersed yourself yeah. in in the fact that that exists. You know, <laughs> um, I, it was a little random yeah. that I came across it, but it seemed fairly significant to me. 
Um, well, that, yeah, thank you. I think it is. Yeah. Also, so, I mean, I think that the other significance is, is just that um, I think when you're going through grief or loss, um, you never know who's going to show up and be there for you and kind of help make the experience a little bit more manageable. And those those were some of the gifts out of the experience is the people that, you know, step forward to be uh, there for and, me. Yeah, and, and he stood out. Um that was a place in your graduate school experience where you did get um, held up and supported. And it, and of course it is most typically people that have had their own experiences with grief. I find. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Either you run screaming or you become more comfortable in that space. Um, And he, he was willing to go there, I guess. Huh? Yeah, and he gave me some amazing advice. I actually put the advice in the book, but yeah, he was he was like very fatherly for me and I really I'm really grateful for that. Always will be. I'd love as as we're getting a little bit close to the end, I'd love if you uh share a bit from out of the epilogue of the book because uh you know, that takes I I love the three sections that that you um divided into it into, um, and I'm looking for my note on it right now. Um, I have the book in front of me, so I'll just go look right there. Despair, shifting, and beauty. So, um, you know, heading into the beauty part uh, and where this has led you in your life, uh, the epilogue is a good place to start with that. Could you share a bit from that? Sure, yeah, I'll read a little passage. Um, This epilogue is called The Path of the Brokenhearted. The poet Rumi wrote that the cracks in our hearts are the places where light comes in. What if this is our entryway, our access point, our way to know love, our way to connect with the divine, how we grow, how we evolve? Then our job is to embrace the tears and know our sorrow as a form of love rich with gifts and meaning that can help us transform into the greatest version of ourselves. Not everyone walks this road or gets thrown on it. It's not for the faint of heart. It's sacred. For the bold, the courageous, the sensitive, those who feel the most, the ones who have the ability to weave straw into gold and turn shit into poetry and magic. Let the heartbreak break you and kill you until you die. Your death makes you an alchemist. The reward is to know love on a level unknown to most and to appreciate the connections with loved ones in deeper ways. This is heartbreak's bittersweet gift, the gift you were willing to risk your life for. Don't dismiss your burden or path lightly, for it's a sacred calling and will teach you of the beauty of the world. Trust it and feel the depths of your pain. Let it move you into the mystery of the unknown you yet to come. Take this time in the dark and honor its wisdom. You will emerge stronger, wiser, powerful. Healing your broken heart is the way towards the wholeness you crave. Grieving is a completion of an incompleteness that can never be completed. This could take your whole life. The lessons are for you specifically and for your greatest embodiment. I don't know if, I don't know if this happens for you, but uh, I don't know that there's really a day 
that goes by in my work that I'm not in some way referring non-verbally. You know, I, I don't talk about uh, my experience that much in my work uh, with clients, for sure, unless I really think it'll help them in some way. But um, it's it's present every day. What just what you're talking about that 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 time in my life really opened me up, and um, I'm capable of more than I than I was. Uh, do you find that now? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, 100%. I think that um, these kinds of losses are um, like initiations into some access to a different kind of experience of life. Um, and I don't think that not, not everybody necessarily goes there or, or has that. You know, it's very bittersweet. And um, it, it definitely helps me with my work, because, and I'm sure it does with you, because I can hold a lot of pain um, because I've gone through the, those steps of pain. And, um, you know, for better or for worse, it definitely makes me who I am and hopefully does make me a better therapist. Also, so there's something do. about, you know, I think we, we share in common what really helped me and it sounds like what helped you was people who could just be there. They didn't have to do, they didn't have to fix anything or really do any big deal. They just had to be there. And uh, when you yeah. know that it, it's kind of relaxing for the, for those of us listening, just being there is, is usually enough. Yeah. Being there and just showing up. Yeah. Yeah, it's really important. Yeah. Well, that's a good place and to end for the day, Sarah. <laughs> We're, we've run out of time. It all, well, it thank flies you by. so much for having me. This has been oh, great. It, it, it's my pleasure. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Uh, and and listeners, you can go find Sarah and her book, Love You Like the Sky, at sarahneustatter.com. Next week, I'll have Eduardo Strauch. His book, Out of the Silence, recounts his experiences after the 1972 crash of his plane in the Andes, the rescue of 16 survivors and the 72 days later, and how the experience has deeply influenced his life. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host.